Finally, radio that was made just for you. Voice America Women's Radio Network. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. On Voice America Women's Network. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Lauren Beller, my co-host. How are you this morning, Lauren? I'm excellent, Catherine. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. Good. Well, we got our guests. We kind of jammed them all in the first half hour. Not sure who we have on this morning, to tell you the truth. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I just got back from Chicago last night, and that's another story I'll tell you later on in the show. But we have our guest. Uh, our guest is here. Oh, that's great. Okay, so he, we have Troy Johnson. He is the author of Family Outing. What happened when I found out my mother was gay? Very appropriate that I am uh, airing the show here from Provincetown, Massachusetts, I think. Anyway, Troy is the senior editor of Rivera Magazine, and for six years he hosted and co-wrote Fox Run, a television show about underground music, for which he won two Emmy Awards. He's also written for Rolling Stone, San Diego Gay, and Lesbian Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Troy. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Great to have you. Yeah, I guess we had a little bit of, uh, I don't know, some kind of problem with our uh, communication here. But anyway, so we're on. So how are you this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The coffee is slowly creeping its way through my veins and waking me up one inch at a time. (laughs) Good for you. Family (laughs) outing. I don't know if you heard me say it, but I'm here in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Nice. Yeah, I just had family week here, as a matter of fact. And... uh, Two of my closest friends were here, both of them lesbians. So, all right, let's talk. Family outing, what happened when I found out about my mother was gay? That, uh, and it happened, I guess, when you were a teenager, right? Right, yeah. I was actually, well, I was actually 10 years old when, when this murky, um, charactered woman showed up at my door and, and outed my mother and said, you know, your mother's gay. She'd been a family friend for a long time. Little did I know that they were lovers. Hear you. What's that? Are you still there? Yeah, I couldn't hear you. You were kind of fading out. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Let me let me restate that. Then I, mean, I was ten years old, and you know, it was it was cold and dark morning in San Diego. No, it was actually I think it was perfectly sunny. That's how San Diego is. But uh, um, but somebody, my my mom, a family friend who we'd, we'd known for a long time. My parents had divorced when I was three. You know, we'd been basically spending all of our time with this woman, and my mom had already left for work. Well, this woman showed up at my door. You know, and I thought mom was dead because nobody ever you know knocked on the door before school unless it was the Jesus people on the weekend. Right. <laughs> and and then she, you know, basically proceeded to tell me that my mother was gay. I was 10 years old. I didn't know that um, what homosexual was, let alone put on its nifty little prefixes. So it was, it was a you know, life-changing day. Why would, you that? Day, why would a sure. woman could knock on your door, this 10-year-old kid, and say your mother is gay? I mean, what was her motivation? Well, you know, it's the details are a little bit shady, you know, but we understand that uh, my mother had heard of been dating for six or seven years at that point. And, you know, my mother, I guess, had written a letter to my to her brother essentially saying, hey, you know, they'd become pretty close and said, you know, I'm not going to be able to see it very much anymore and yada, yada, yada. Well, I don't think that, that her lover at that time, who in the book I call Tattledyke, um, was out of the closet to her family. So as a measure of, you know, equal equal rights in outing, um, she came over and dropped the bomb on me. <laughs> All right, 10-year-old kid, your mother is gay. Uh, what you, would you, you do? How would you feel? I mean, what happened? Well, well I, at first I did a song and dance. And then I, yeah, I laughed for about an hour and a half, drew some funny photos. No, it was it was horrible. I mean, it was a life changing day. I mean, the only reason why it was horrible at that point was because I just didn't understand it. But it was it was crazy. I mean, I, I didn't know what it was. You know, this woman made it sound like my mom had you know some sort of irreversible cancer. You know, and she was going to go to the hospital until her you know and eat ice cream until her hair fell out. You know, so I mean, it, it was it was a life changing day. It was a horrible day. You know, and that was my first introduction to the gay. You know, uh, or you know, gay lifestyle was that you know it was just kind of very serious thing that you know was obviously the the axe against a family tree. That's kind of how this one presented it. So you know, it was you know when you, when you're first introduced to the fact that your parents gay, you know, you hope it's a little bit more of a stable situation. So it was tough. So did you feel like I mean I, this, I mean you talk about feel like maybe it's catching that you may have the gay gene that oh my god what what you know 
um, I could be gay, too. I mean, all kinds of stuff, I, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many things that go along with it. I mean, and that's why I read the book. There's so many things that were going through my head. Not necessarily that it was a normal head. I mean, it was, it was definitely a little bit of a twisted teenage head, but it was a head. And, uh, and you know, I, I did, there was a lot of things like, you know, the over-sexualization of my own mother. Nobody would let me forget that she was a sexual human being, so all of a sudden she became this, especially when you're hitting puberty about 14 years old, you know, you start over-sexualizing your mother, and it kind of ruins this caretaker image. And then, as you said, you know, I worried that I was going to be gay. You know, I thought that there was, nobody was really sure. There was a story in Newsweek about 1991. Three, I think it was, you know, about a gay gene and whether or not it existed, you know, and and I thought that you know this gay goop was going to sneak down my mother's placenta and had you know embedded itself in my DNA, and one day this rogue gay gene was going to like kill off my other straight genes with this color coordinated free radicals, and I was going to be gay. You know, and I, you know, and I had seen what my mother had gone through. You know, and it wouldn't have been so bad had I not seen what my mother had gone through in terms of, you know, people from her church walking away from her, friends basically pretending like she's got a case of the leprosy. You know, what year was that? Because things have changed, obviously, and, and for the good, for the better. Absolutely. Things have changed. I don't think it's a liberal bastion that we all like to think it is still. I still think that there's kids on the, on the schoolyard who are willing to tell, you know, Johnny that his lesbian mommy, you know, howls at the moon naked on the front lawn. You know, but... But I do think things have gotten so much better, you know, and it, it, it is a different time, you know. But I see what my mom had gone through, you know. I mean, there's no reason, there's no reason, rhyme or you know, sanity that would make me want to be gay, you know, at that point because I'd seen everybody do what she'd been through. Well, I think the statistics are that 10 million Americans, one in every 30 people, have at least one lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered parent. That's, I know, and that's what we know. You know, that's just the, probably just the tip of the iceberg. Absolutely. I never played kickball with him. Yeah. You know, so I did. <laughs> so what advice do you have? I mean, this is like, a re- you know, the, your, your story. What would you, what, you know, what do you want us to know? What do you want the audience to know about your experience? Well, just a fact. I mean, there's a couple things that, you know, at the end of, you know, and I never proselytized in the book. I mean, I wanted to write a book that was kind of David Sedaris as Hunter S. Thompson, something that didn't really, you know, take a political stance and hammer it home. So I just, I didn't write that out. But in the interviews like this, you know, what I always say is that, you know, it, make your kid, if you're, you're a gay, lesbian parent, make them communicate, if not listen. Because, you know, I was allowed to kind of stew in my own resentment towards my mother's lifestyle, and I was able to dictate family life. I banned my mother's lifestyle from the house, you know, a bunch of different things, you know. Make the kid communicate, you know, and even if they don't want to, make them listen. Um, and, and let them scream, let them shout, let them shout, because, you know, there's still a lot of people who are telling them that, the, you know, gays are second-class citizens who don't deserve this sort of and are basically psychological fallout. So if a child feels like, you know, that it's weird and, and you want to scream and shout, it's okay. I think it's, you know, it's, you know, don't make them feel small for that. You know, eventually they'll make themselves feel small for it because they'll become, you know, educated human beings. But, you know, let them come to that process on their own. But, you know, let the child seek, get it out, talk, I mean, communication. I mean, obviously that's always a good thing. But what about support systems? Are there support systems for kids whose parents are gay that they can go to and, you know, talk to other kids or, or you you know, you know, those kinds of, of, you know, formats so that they can have support from their peers. Definitely. You know, and that's the thing. My mother tried to get me to go to collage when I was a kid, and I didn't. And, you know, I basically refused because I thought it was some sort of, you know, gay training program. And, you know, she was trying to get me away from my straight people. Um, but, I, you know, I don't regret that. You know, I, I really regret that. You know, I wish that at some point in time I would have been able to meet a lot more kids, you know, that have the same situation as I am. You know, I mean, the more people that you're around that are in the same situation as you, the less freaky it seems, the less life-threatening it seems, the less the sky is falling, it seems. You know, and the other thing I wanted, wanted to tell, you know, people who are, you know, bigoted against other people is that you're not only affecting the parents, you know, you're affecting everybody in their lives. You know, I mean, I, you know, my, my growth, as you say, was, was stunted for sure because I felt that my mother was, you know, a pervert for quite a while. So, you know, whoever's, whoever's being bigoted against my mother was also, you know, being bigoted against a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old. Family outing. What happened when I found out my mother was gay? We can go to. Can we buy? We can buy the book online. Bookstores everywhere. And do you have a website that we can go to? Well, I do. I do not have a website. Well, I have a, my, my MySpace page. That's what I've got set up for it right now. It's MySpace uh, forward slash family outing book. What's the response you've gotten from the? Uh, just one last question because we only have a minute left. But what's the response you've gotten from the gay community? 
we've been had overwhelming response from the gay community that you know are just uh, gay wired. You know, said that it was uh, you know the funniest book ever written by a straight guy. <laughs> it's, it's been it's been great because you know I think that there's a profound lack of sense of humor about this whole conversation. You know, whether or not gays should parent or not, and uh, it's been great. I mean, I was really nervous about it because it's my mom's community. It's a, it's a community it's that I've come to support, and support and love, and I thought you know using humor. I don't know if I have the right to be a straight guy, but. Johnson, family outing. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm going to shut up now and go back to sleep. All right, good. Talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celestia Renese's timely topics in childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Uh-huh. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at pornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Great guests, great stories, great listening. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone on Voice America Women's Network with my co-host, Lauren Deller. Lauren, are you there? I am. Well, our next guest is on the line. This is a very serious topic. She's written the book. This is her new book, The Suicide Index, Putting My Father's Death in Order, Joan Wickersham. And uh, she's, uh, Joan is, uh, lives in, uh, actually she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is the author of the novel The Paper Anniversary. Her fiction has appeared in magazines including the Hudson Re- Review, Plowshares, and Story. She's also written for the Boston Globe and read on-air essays for NPR's On Point and Morning Edition. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Joan. Yeah, it's great to have you. I mean, the, the statistics were startling. Apparently, every year in America, there are twice as many suicides as murders. Uh, that's, that's. I mean, I, I don't know how many murders there are, but, I mean, that's an incredible statistic and, and, uh, and, and chilling, actually. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's a stunning, um, stunningly uh, upsetting statistic. And I also think what I find very weird is that given the frequency with which suicide happens, there's a kind of silence that surrounds it that is really, um, really strange. You know, that we just, we don't talk about it. I think we don't really know how to talk about it. And do, why do you think that is? I mean, my gut reaction is that people don't want to talk about it because there's somewhat, there's some shame involved, like that it, it's shameful. And, and if someone in your family commits suicide, it's like, well, they, they left you, they had a choice to leave you. Let's talk about some of those issues. Cause I, I think isn't yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there is a kind of, there's certainly a stigma that attaches immediately afterwards to the person who commits suicide. And that was one of the things that was the saddest for me about my father's death was, and I write about that in the Suicide Index, that basically one day he was this admired, trusted, respected man, and then suddenly the next day everybody looked at him differently. So it was it was as if he kind of, he kind of lost 
he lost something when he when he did that. He, I lost something of him in my memory, and he lost a kind of standing with the people that had loved him, even though they still loved him. And so there was a kind of shame that happened there. Then there's a kind of shame that I think you're right attaches to the um, the family. You know, there's there's a way that people don't people sort of don't know what to say, and so you you almost feel like if you you know if you start to talk about the suicide, you get met with a kind of embarrassed silence. And I, I think that it, it feels like shame, whether or not it is shame. Sometimes I think it's more that people just don't know what to say or do. So there's this this silence, and it feels. It feels like shame, and it may not necessarily be shame. So in the book, Joan, you go through all the emotions. I mean, you just carry us through the whole story, uh, you know, before and after, um, and, uh, and uh, the experience of loss. Um, was there any indication, or, I mean, I would imagine there's also the feeling of guilt. I could have done something. I should have done something. I should have seen something. I mean, uh, that has to be a huge part of it also. Yes, I think it is. Um, you know, and I think every every suicide is different. I mean, one of the things I'm a real, as a writer, I'm a real believer in personal stories and the, and the sort of the individual um, nature of each story, but also about the resonances that, that kind of are more universal. And I think that is a thread that runs through suicides, is that kind of guilt, and why didn't we see it, why didn't we see it? I mean, with my father, you know, as I said, he was a very seemingly secure, dignified, uh, loving, uh, kind, witty elegant man. And so when he killed himself, uh, it just came out of the blue as far we, as we were concerned. So he really kept this despair hidden. And that was one of the, when I found out about his death, uh, the morning he died, I got a phone call that he, that he and told me that, you know, he had taken his own life. And my initial reaction was that is impossible. He would never have done that. And yet there was this other part of me that said, of course. And what I write, the reason that I think I wrote the suicide index was trying to reconcile those contradictions. How could, on the one hand, he have hidden it so beautifully, and yet the minute he did it, I suddenly started to feel that there were things there that I maybe had seen but hadn't realized how deep and how serious and how miserable they were. Well, I think the issue of denial comes into play, and, and, and understandably, I mean, you don't want to see it, and you don't want to feel it, I think, for most of us anyway. Um, but what is the suicide index? Exactly the what? suicide index, the book is literally organized as an index. It's, it's kind of a collection of short pieces. Some of them are very short. I think the shortest chapter in the book is actually just one word long. And some of them are more, you know, 25 or 30 pages. But there are various stories connected with the events of my father's death, the things that I think led up to his death, going back into his childhood and our family history, and then also about the impact that his death had on me and the people around him. Um, and I tried initially, you know, my background was as a novelist, so I tried initially to write a novel about a family where the father committed suicide, and it just didn't work. It was, you know, it was organized in chronological order, and it was very nicely written, and it just felt flat and dull and muted and it didn't really seem to have anything to do with this experience that I went through which was extremely messy and extremely you know jumbled and so I came up with the idea of the suicide index I wrote these little fragments these pieces about my father's death and I wanted to the, the fragmentary nature of the pieces I think reflects the nature of the experience which is chaotic you know going through somebody's suicide one day you think you understand the next day you're asking why again the next day you're still asking why again and then two days later you find out something that makes you say, aha, and then you realize two days later, no, no, I still don't understand. So I, I, I wanted to really reflect that, but I wanted to organize it for the reader in a way that made it feel like there was there was a kind of story that pulls you through the book. So the, or, the organization of the book is, as I said, an index. Each, each chapter is an index entry, and I think it's, it's a way of imposing order on chaos while still letting, still acknowledging that the nature of the experience is messy. And, mess, and when you talk about that, I mean, the re relationship between, uh, and each one of you are in the family, your mother, you, the rest of the family members, experience the, the suicide in a different way because you had a different relationship to your father. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, and I think that's, again, something that's true not only with suicide but with any, any major event that rocks a family. Um, and we all have something in our family that is a huge, a huge event. I think it's particularly true with suicide because with suicide – 
there's a kind of mystery that's just embedded in, in, in the event. And it was the minute someone dies that way, everybody starts asking why, and everybody starts coming up with their own answer to that question. And the answer that one person comes up with is going to be really different. And I think you're absolutely right, Catherine, that it's because the relationships with the, with the person were different. My relationship with my father was different from my mother's relationship with him or my sister's or his business partner or anybody. So everybody had their different take on the event. And nobody's version, you know, nobody's version is definitive. I think people have to wrestle with it in their own ways. And I think that's one of the reasons this experience can be so lonely for the people who go through it, because even though you're all in the same family, you're all seeing it differently. So, you know, you start to talk about what you think happened, and then your version of it might really not jive with someone else's. And that's, I I think that's, everybody has to come to their own understanding of the events. And and I think, I mean, the book is a very sensitive book, and I think that, you know, by putting it out there, um, you're going to help a lot of other people, a lot of other families. So, you know, what's, and, and I, I assume that you've had a lot of positive response from the book. So, and different kinds of responses. Can yeah. you share some of those with us, Joan? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, there have been some very, very moving responses from people who have been through a suicide and who, who say that they sort of looked for comfort. You know, they wanted to find something to read, and they're really, they, they didn't really feel that there was anything. And then people, a lot of times with people who have been through suicide, they just, you know, we just want to tell the story. And I find that with other people that have been through it, that I have actually a chapter in the Suicide Index where I talk about other people's stories um, and just... It's an experience that once you go through it, you sort of find that there are other people in your life who have lost someone that way, and you you just start exchanging the stories, and you sort of realize, in a way, all the stories are different, and all the stories are sort of the same, and there's a kind of comfort in that, and I so very moving response to the book in terms of other people who have been through the experience, and then just also, I think, response has been lovely in terms of just reading it as a piece of writing. Um, as a reader, I tend to really gravitate toward memoirs, and I really like reading books that are written in kind of a strong voice about an experience that I haven't had, because I'm just curious. I feel like the writer can take me along into an experience and, and let me really see what it's like to experience it. I find that, you know, that's one of the reasons I read. And so I've gotten many responses of of that kind also. Yeah, and, and you do that in the book. You do it beautifully. I mean, uh, what about, you know, if, if listeners and people who have gone through this experience or uh, maybe are fearful that someone in their family may be at risk, what kinds of advice would you have for them what to do and how would you, you know, in terms of, of um, getting help or getting support? Yeah, I mean, I tend to believe, when I look at my father's life, he was someone who was reserved to the point of secrecy. I mean, I write about this in the book, that he he was private to the point where when things started to really fall apart for him, I think he thought it was almost a point of honor to keep it all inside and not tell anybody. And um, I really believe that part of what killed him was his isolation. And so I, I, I really do think to find to find sensitive people who will listen and, and not, you know, not give necessarily advice, but just, I think the isolation is really dangerous. It's dangerous for someone who is depressed. Um, and I think depression is, is kind of a, sometimes it's about isolation. And then I think for anyone who's actually been through this experience, to stay isolated with the feelings you have after going through it is also really, really dangerous. At the same time, I think if you are a friend of someone who's been through this, I think you have to really respect that person's um, need to go through it in their own way and at their own pace. You know, sometimes I think if your friend goes through something hard, you want to fix it so badly that you want to just make it okay right away and you want to offer advice. And I think with with suicide, it's, it's really good to just let the person know you love them and then just let them come to you and you know and you're willing you're willing to listen but let them come to you in their own way in their own time yeah and i think that's a really good point we only have a couple minutes left but i think that whole you wanting to make it better and and you can't make it better and you can't make it better overnight and and it really is i guess the word is process and it takes a lot of and it's painful yeah uh, yeah well and, you know it's interesting another response i've gotten to this book from friends of mine is they've said, oh, you know, we read, we read the book and we just didn't realize what it was like for you to go through this and we wish we could have helped you. We should have helped you more. And what I said to them, and this is completely true, is you did help me. You know, they loved me all the way through. They were there with me all the way through. They couldn't fix it. They couldn't change it. They couldn't make it better. But I certainly felt the love and support. So that's really all you can do. 
Yeah. I think just people have that, you know, I mean, that's a good point because you do that need to fix it, the need to make it better, and just being there and loving the person and supporting them is what you need. We only have a minute left. The Suicide Index, Putting My Father's Death in Order, Joan Wickersham. We can purchase the book online, bookstores yeah. everywhere. That's right. Yeah, and Joan, do you have a website we can go to? I do. It's um, www. Joan Wickersham. It's one word, uh, W-I-C-K-E-R-S-H-A-M.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Great to have you. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, what a, it's a really compelling book, and uh, it's, it's, it's very, very well written. Anyway, we have to take a short break. Lauren Beller, Catherine Fox, Voice America Women's Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Radio that talks with you, not at you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. We all have issues. Parenting, addictions, disorders, anxiety, stress. How do we expand on what's working and improve what's not? Let Quantum Leaps with Beth Wilson bring you a high-energy approach to personal growth and creative life change. Listen every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Women's Channel. Let Beth bring you back to sanity with a blend of humor and perspective so you can make the change you need. Quantum Leaps with Beth Wilson. Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, here on Voice America Women's Channel. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Finally, radio that has real depth. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. Thanks for joining us this morning. Lauren Miller and Catherine Zox on Voice America Women's Network. That was a pretty heady topic, Lauren, but uh, I think that's uh, good information, and it's a, it's a, the book is incredible. Um, I thought the contrast for the morning so far was interesting, Catherine. We have someone that wants to make humor out of a the hardest day of his life, it sounds like, and another one that's really serious about another hardest day in her life. Exactly. And she oh said my. we all have crises. And, we uh, do. Yeah, we really do. And it's how you react to respond to the crises. You know, life is, a, and I don't want to get morbid, but like life is a series of losses and it's how we respond to our losses that what it, it sort of creates the flavor of our lives. I mean, I was flying, I was in Chicago visiting my son this weekend and I was coming back. I actually just got back last night, barely. I had to hire a car to get back here because of the weather. I mean, you know, oh, if it no. rains, <laughs> when it rains, the whole East Coast, all the air, you know, O'Hare, I was stuck in O'Hare for three hours and land in Boston and missed my, you know, the uh, been there two weeks ago. Yeah, you were. That's what you said, right? Exactly. You were in for 12 hours. Of course, now I only have myself to deal with, so it's much easier. Much so, easier, yeah. Well, I didn't have to take care of a baby, so I had to wait and uh, I just went to uh, Legal Seafood and had a scotch and <laughs> and some cherry stone clams. So uh, <laughs> there there is hope anyway. So I at least made something fun out of it. But it's like, um, you know, it's an eight-seater Cape Air from Boston to here, and I missed the flights. I mean, and so I had to, I, I literally had to hire a driver to bring me back to the Cape last night at 11 o'clock at night. Because you couldn't fly. Because I couldn't fly, I would have to come this morning, but then, you know, it's foggy again in the morning, and I'd be in the same situation, so it was just easier to to hire this driver, and uh, and that worked out fine. That was good, and I had to get my equipment, because that was in my suitcase, because I did my show from Chicago on Monday, and, you know, that was my crisis for the week. We We have them. Yeah. We have them all the time. So, but your point, though, is life is a series of losses. Yes. And, and I, I'm gonna ch- I want to challenge it. I think it's a series of changes. Well, all right. That's making it a little softer, isn't it? Because sometimes there's not just, sometimes there's like having a baby is not, well, there's a loss of the old life and a gain of a new life, you know, but, and, but it changes your life drastically. 
All right, so that's true. Having a baby is is the first loss, both for not for the mother, but for the baby. I mean, here you are in this, I mean, there's some kind of a sense that, you know, you're in the womb, it's comfortable, uh, you, you know, it's the perfect environment, and all of a sudden, you know, in this kind of like, uh, kind of harsh set of, you know, you know, being born is a tough thing for both the mother and the baby. And then so that's the, that's, as a person, that's your first loss. And then you have to face the the world and then they put you in a crib you've been in your nice warm womb environment and then what do we do in america in western culture we stick you in a crib in another room talk about separation isn't it awful yeah why do we do that and Uh. that's what you know if you go to some of these therapists that's what they'll tell you to do you have to separate the baby it's not good to have them in the room it's not good to have them in the bed I don't agree with that. I don't either. I actually, I don't like, to, I didn't want to have Sierra in the physical space, like in my bed, but she was next to the bed for two months. I didn't want to roll on her because I could be a really good sound sleeper, but I've learned not to be. You don't want to crush your baby. Yeah, I didn't want to. I felt, I felt like I wasn't going to sleep well and I felt like I needed good sleep, but I didn't want her in the next room. That felt so far away. I didn't either. And I took one of those, car- just the carriage, and I put him, you know, he was in the carriage and, and beside me in the bed or beside us. Perfect. Yeah, I, but almost, not for two months, but for at least maybe four months. I think that's so true. How We listen to others about how to care for ourselves and how to care for others rather than listen to ourselves. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because we're a culture. We listen to the experts. Crazy. And yeah. experts in quotes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Experts in quotes. Because, and then you start feeling guilty. Well, I, well what am I going to You know, when you're going against what the experts say, especially mothers, everybody's got advice for them. And the advice changes all the it time. It does. Experts change. Next, you know, one week, one month, one year, they'll tell you baby has to go in the other room and the next and, and, you know, your bad mother, if you keep it in the room, it's not going to be able to be a separate person and it's going to affect your sex life and on and on, you know. And it's like, you know what? The next year they tell you, oh, that baby has to be in the room with you. So, you know. No, listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. And you really have to listen to yourself. That's so true. And I'm going to, people can be listening to you. You're going to be in Albany, New York, I see. Chamber of Commerce in New York, you know, sent out this mass mailing. Lauren Bella, tell us about that because you're going to be speaking, you and another author are going to be speaking. Right, I, we are the in the Albany Chamber of Commerce in October. There's just a lot. All of a sudden, speaking gigs are popping up all over. So that's happening in October. We're going to be focused on goal setting at the end of the year, last quarter of the year. And are we, have we met our goals? If we haven't, what do we need to do? And how do we get ourselves geared up for the next round of goals as we head into a new year? That's what that's what that particular one's about. I'm also going to be the keynote and featured the featured keynote on um, September 19th in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for their Nabo event, which is going to be a they say between four and five hundred people. Fantastic! Now, what's a Nabo event? Nabo is the National Association of Women Business Owners, and it's their local chapter that I guess is very large and very. They have a a large membership, and every year do this big full one day event. Oh, that's very cool. That's great. So you are the featured speaker there. Uh, yeah. You talk about the same thing, like goal setting for the the. That one actually is a little bit different. The topic, of, the theme for the day is be gigantic. <laughs> I'm trying to lose weight. I don't want to be gigantic. I love that. <laughs> and I think it's so funny that they call me who's like you know 112 pounds. Exactly, 112 pounds. Tiny little thing. Be gigantic. And also, women are always trying not to be gigantic. I mean, we want to be. Why they choose that topic? That's very. Well, because it's not about their physical bodies. It's so much more about, you know, what's what's possible for their impact in the world. Their impact can be gigantic without them being physically gigantic. So you could, oh, I have to tell you this. I'm standing, you know, I was, I'm getting, I'm going, I was standing waiting to, in front of the Cape Air, I told you, like it's an eight-seat plane, and, you know, to to see if I could get on, and, you know, I missed it, and I couldn't go to uh, Cape, Provincetown, but on these small planes, when you check in, you have the, the, the person behind the desk ask you, how much do you weigh? No, dude, I knew they were going to start doing that soon. They, they, because, you know, they, can, they have to know how much weight there's going to be on the plane and, and, whether, and, and how much baggage they can put on these small planes, because it has to be very well balanced. It does. And, you know, even on big planes now, I've had people, they've had to rearrange where we were sit- seated. But, Lauren, this woman comes up beside me. Uh-oh. Huge. Like, she was, like, gigantic. Like two of you. Or two, you and I together plus a third person. Oh, my goodness. I mean, a slight exaggeration, but not too much. Okay, so she comes up. She stands up. She's gigantic. And, of course, she has a big yellow 
tutu thing on. I don't understand why she was. I'm wearing black. She's wearing yellow. But that's another story. <laughs> so she's got this big yellow thing That's on. for the fashion section of our conversation. <laughs> Is it? I mean, come on, ladies. So, and then she has this tiny little dog who weighs about three pounds and treating the dog like the dog is a baby. And the guy is standing, and he, she's trying to make her flight, and the ticket counter guy says, you know, she's, yeah, she's made her flight. It wasn't my flight. It was another one. And he said, and how much do you weigh? She said, 272. <laughs> and I tried to, I didn't want to, I just stared straight ahead. 272 pounds. What did you, what, we're, like... Is she going to sit near you on the plane, and how is no, that going to work? Were they trying to balance how the plane... Yeah. They, Did they also ask you how much you weighed? Well, they asked me... I, no, because I didn't make... Because my flight took off, so I didn't have to tell oh, how much I, I weighed. <laughs> Would they have asked you how much you weighed? Oh, yeah. They want to know. They have to know exactly. I mean, it would seem to me they should. They have to weigh you, too, because people lie about their age. I they mean, do. Their age, not their age, their, their, their weight. Their weight. Yeah. Even more so than their age. Even more so. so. But it was so funny. I thought, well, this is not a good thing. You're going to have to really put people on scale. Because just asking them, I mean, she said, but she said it like she had practiced and it was just nothing at 272 pounds and she was probably just a couple inches taller than I. I mean, it wasn't like she was this big, tall woman. Uh. And there was another couple who came up and they were on a different flight, another small flight. They were like average sized people. And so the, the guy asked the woman, how much do you weigh? So she's trying to make it, you know, everybody's personalities come out. She is like, well, I, um, well, do you want my highest weight or my lowest weight? And she wanted to make sure sure that with my clothes on or without my <laughs> clothes on, I mean, she probably weighed 130 pounds, five feet, five. I mean, she was just like an average body type, but she was obviously very uh, meticulous person. So she wanted, it, 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 I mean, it was very, very funny. Be, and I'm listening because as each person came up and had to tell how much they weighed. That, I've, I knew they were going to start doing that because it, they've been really, they weigh our bags. So if they're going to weigh our bags, why aren't they weighing us, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they do that. They do that. Well, they've always done it on these very small planes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they, you have to take a bag off, and the bag has to come at a, at a different time. I've been on a flight in the Caribbean where they do that, and they don't let the bag on. Because, Crazy. Yeah, I mean, so because the, the bag... It does scale. change how we fly. I mean, I think people will think twice. They're going to ask me, like, wait, maybe I'll just take a car or a bus. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think well, you don't have to worry about that. I don't. No, no. I don't. I would not care about that. It's, I really don't care. I went to the doctors not too long ago, and I had my, you know, large. I used to carry like no purse just a wallet, but now with a kid, you carry. You you have more. So I have this bag that I throw over my shoulder. That's sort of like a brief bag, but it, it sort of has everything in it. And, too much, you know. And I go to get on the scale, and I have my bag on my shoulder and my shoes on, and the woman looked at me like I was crazy. I said, what's the matter? She says, don't you want to put that bag down? I'm like, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, you don't have to worry about that at all. I mean, um, but uh, I think... I went on a helicopter. Here's one in Hawaii. And helicopters really have to be well-balanced also. But they ask you at the desk how much you weigh. Six Do they? The, yeah, six people in the helicopter. This was in Hawaii. And then they actually, and then you tell them, and then right before you go, you know, to get in the bus to go on the helicopter, they put you on the scale. They check you. They check you so you can't lie about it. Wow, that's I, amazing. Yeah, I don't think men have that same problem. They don't lie about it, you mean? Well, I don't think it bothers them as much. I mean, I... I oh, no, I think they're actually proud of their weight. Yeah, because it's muscle or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> even if it's big, fat stomachs, they still, it doesn't, right? Well, this is certainly a different tone than the last 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to have variation, variety, and balance, right? We do, we yeah. do. No, it is. Anyway, because uh, I want to talk about, this is real. one of my kids, this is... Well, you're, we are talking about nannies on the show, and uh, one of my boys just emailed me. Actually, both of them emailed me because they had gotten an email from one of their nannies from 24, 23 years ago. And she had seen oh their name. Oh, my God. Yeah, very interesting. And this is like, she was like a really interesting young woman. Now she's in her 40s, I guess. Um, and uh, she had seen the name, because the name is, you know, I, for some reason she had tried to Google Zocks. Well, that's easy, because she found the Zocks fan, and, and she wasn't sure whether it was the same, but then she Googled Johnny, who's at my middle son, who's in the Zox, who's in Zocks. And, um, yeah, she reconnected. And they were writing back and forth, and she's, she had pictures, you know, photographs of them, the three boys when they were little, and with her. Um, and she has her own baby now, but it was very interesting. Yeah, it was, and, and they're all three connecting with her. 
Interesting. Yeah. The Internet does amazing things. I've had people out of the blue find me, too. Just recently, it seems to be the thing to do. People are just... It's amazing how people use the Internet. Yeah, well, it's very easy now. You very can, easy. And if you, of course, with a name like Zox, there aren't that many Zoxes, so it's going to be easy to find. Yep, it's yeah. true. Yeah, so, you know, old old babysitters, Nancy, uh, jo- my son, my, and we just actually, my son has said to me, you know, I, we were talking about babysitters, and Nancy, she said that, you know, that uh, Nancy was the one who raised me. I said, no, she didn't. <laughs> 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 Your son said that? In other words, you didn't raise him. Yeah, right. See, instilling guilt, you know, trying to make me feel guilty, right? That's so funny. Yeah. I can't believe he said that. Did he say that just to get under your skin? Yeah, absolutely. Funny. Yeah. She was a good, she actually, she was great. Very bright. I think she was getting her MBA at the time. I always had to have very smart babysitters. That's important. Yeah. I have, my thing is not that they have to be, well, I shouldn't say this so loud. I'll, t- I'll say <laughs> a little bit. You're saying it on, bo- on the Internet, my dear. Yeah, but the, the person that I don't want to hear it is in the in other the room. Next room. No big deal. But um, it doesn't, to me, it's not about smart. It's about compassionate. Yeah. Well, see, that's the difference between you and me. I have no compassion. No, that's not true. We're going to take a break. We'll talk about this when we come back. <laughs> Lauren Beller and Catherine Zox on Voice America Women's Network. Don't go away. We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice. What if something happens? Will you come get me? Should I stay where I am and wait for you? Or go to Grandma's house since it's closer? Should I pick a place for me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? How do we keep in touch with each other if the phones don't work? Should I be worried how we all get home? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart, but I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Lots more to talk about, right, Lauren? Um, you're compassionate, and I'm just concerned with how smart they are when we're talking about our babysitters. So, but I think every mother, when you're hiring your nanny, you have your priorities, and your, I mean, you obviously the, you want somebody who's going to be good to your kids and kind and responsible. But then your other values come into play, and you end up picking people who are maybe similar, like yourself, or who reflect the family values when you're getting somebody to spend all that time with your kid. It's true. It's really true. I mean, I, I don't want, I, I, let, I had people leave because of it. Like, I asked them to leave because it, there was not a, mi, a mesh, a good fit with the, with the values. Yeah, with the family. And sometimes you don't know that till they're there. It's and true. It's, yeah, and it's really hard to tell them to leave. Well, I've had told them to leave, and I've had nannies tell me they're leaving. <laughs> it's too much for me. I can't end it. <laughs> but uh, that kind of, you know, as each son was added some people some people can't handle three boys or three kids you know so that's different than when you just have one so you know there are a lot of different factors it's listen true. to this 
do you, uh, is, uh, do you have a cheating spouse? This expert shows you how to spot financial infidelity. Do you know what financial infidelity is? Financial you should know you're a business infidelity. coach. I, mean, I can make up what I think it is. All right, so what do you think financial infidelity is? When you do make, make financial investments and you don't tell the other person about it. Close that it is that could be something, but this is this is a little more just kind of everyday mundane. Uh, the author is Adrian Ashley, and she's well. Her, her first book, I don't know if she's how many books she's written, but anyway, one of her books is Every Girl's Guide to Her Future Husband's Last Divorce. That's the title of her book, and she describes herself as a certified divorce financial analyst, a certified protection specialist, and a forensic accountant. But it's not so much just, you know, if you invest in money and you don't tell your spouse, but she talks about very often, um, you know, the, the couple, and Americans have difficulty talking about money. That's the other thing. We'll talk about our sex lives. We'll talk about all kinds of other intimate stuff, but not about money. And that carries over into marriage and with different expectations about how much to spend. So she's saying, Lauren, that like, you know, let's say the wife who goes out and spends, uh, you know, $1,000 on, you know, clothes and shoes and jewelry and comes home and tells her husband that everything was on sale and it only cost $200. That's financial infidelity. Oh, that's lying. Well, she calls it... Inf- <laughs> That's lying. Yeah, it is lying. She says it's the same as lying. It's the, it has the same impact as if you went out and had an affair and slept with somebody else. Uh, it has the same impact on your marriage because it is lying. I think that's true. It's a one reason not to trust, you know. It knocks down the opportunity to trust. But that it happens a lot. Oh, like over and over. Mm-hmm. They and do it. Says, well, yeah. I do think that even once has you, like, if that happens once, it's lying. If it happens again, you know what I mean? I feel like it's lying all the time, but it's a, if it's a habitual thing, there's a bigger issue there. Well, she says that every financial lie is a relationship killer. Isn't every lie a relationship killer? Is it? I think, I, I mean, it just diminishes the value of the relationship. Well, what about, is it a lie if you don't tell somebody something? Is that a lie, too? You know, we, it's interesting. I agree with that. I think it is a lie. It's sort of I like you're... My, I slept, I have, a, I have a lover. I never mentioned him, but is that a lie? And you have it a lie is a lie. Him? I yeah. think it's deceitful. Yeah, it's deceitful. Exactly. It's deceitful. And, and it's interesting. My husband and I have an agreement that if we spend over $500 in one, like, if we spend over five, we need to share that. Under that, you know, it's like whatever. You know what I mean? We just have this number that we decided would be helpful to share. This is so that we're, there should be a red flag that says, by the way, I have to remember to tell him that or her that or whatever. So did you decide this before you got married or after you got married? Because, I mean, that's... Uh, I think it was early on. It was interesting. We had a very open money conversation early on. But that's very unusual. That is unusual. Couples don't do that. I think they go into marriage with, you know, we share our assets, we do that, you know, and like this kind of like, you know, pie in the sky kind of thing, and it doesn't work out. And so... You know, people end up lying and not telling the truth, and especially if you, you know, don't get married till you're older and you're used to, you know, doing, spending your money the way you want. It's, I think it's a real big issue that, I mean, you've addressed it, obviously. And to some extent we have, but because I, you know, we both work, we both have our own money to spend and our own money to invest and all of that. So it makes it a little different. If I was not working and he was, I think it would be a really different situation because I would I would need more I would need spending money from him where I don't need that so it's a little bit different. And each couple is different. So exactly. That's why it's important. She calls it, she says, this Adrian Ashley, uh, and you can go to her website, everygirlsguide.com. She says, and I think she makes a really uh, interesting point, that every couple should have what she calls a marital partnership agreement. It's not, it's like a prenuptial, but it's even more than that. that to, and she says that protects your marriage from financial infidelity. If you will actually sit down and really create this marital partnership agreement, to protect your, you know, your, your finances, to discuss your finances and how you're going to spend them so you don't end up with this making up stories about how much you spend, uh, you know, and on whom. Interesting. Yeah. I think now, do you do that? I'm not married. Well, you're in a relationship. <laughs> yes. But, but look a, at the line you get to use. I'm not married. I don't have to do that. I don't, but you know what? That's, you know what marriage is? When I got divorced, I found out what really the marriage contract means. It doesn't mean uh, till death do us part and, and love. It means it, marriage has to, the marriage contra- contract has to do with money and custody. <laughs> you, 
decide to get divorced, that it's a legal document, you know. Getting married in the church, getting married in the synagogue or in the mosque or wherever, you know, the hell you get married, that's one thing. And that's all the love stuff and all the commitment and the spirituality. But the state, they only care about... Two things, it's two, true. Yes, they, they only care about two things, and that's the, the children, who's going to take care of the kids and how you distribute the assets. So... Why am so I'm not married? <laughs> not gonna and no, that's a big thing. So that we don't have to do that, and that maybe is one of the reasons where why the relationship it makes it easier. I mean, I'm not recommending it because you don't have to discuss your assets because you're they're, they are they are legally separate. Yeah, you think I'm making up excuses? I do not I think you're it. making up excuses at all. I do think it's um, it's. Well, you guys don't live together, so it does make it even different. If you live together, it would make the relationship, money would be more of a, a we thing. Good point. I mean, you might have, this is mine, this is mine, and this is ours kind of thing. Exactly. And I am going to, you know, I'll pay for this, you pay for that. Exactly. Um, so I do think that because you physically live separately, except for the, for the six months that you're, six weeks that you go to the Cape every year. Yeah, okay, so there's an example, and we do work that out. Yes, we do. You ask me, do we, you know, who pays for what? And when, we, So during that six weeks, it sort of it becomes more of a joint effort financially. Yes, it becomes, yeah, six weeks. That's about as good as I can <laughs> <laughs> as long as you can tolerate. <laughs> as long as I can stand it, and then, hey, I'm out of here. No. The good thing about you, Catherine, is you know your limitations. Yes, I That's do. That's really important for all of us. I hope I do. I, sometimes I question myself, though, and I think, do I really have a read on how people respond to me? Do you ever feel that way? Oh, yeah, I, told, I think about all that all the time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I can get, like, narcissistic, and I think, oh, wow, everybody loves me, and then I think, you know what? I'm not so sure they do. And they maybe don't want to be with me as much as I thought they did. That's happened to me. Like that's been. It happens to me a couple times a month. Does it? Yeah, I get like pretty confident, and all of a sudden I'll be, like, oh, you know, that I never stood in their shoes and looked at that. I wonder how that's perceived. Yeah, and and I or I'll get some vibes from people, and I'm wondering, you know, maybe it's they. Is they're not warm vibes, and I'm like really surprised, and I'm not sure where it's coming from, but. Um, and I don't tend to do that a lot because maybe I don't doubt myself enough. But I, it's, we have to say goodbye. Well, oh my we have one minute left. So what do you want to leave our listeners with today? I want to say something. Go ahead. That you have a happy birthday tomorrow. Thank you. You remembered. How could I forget? I am 31 years old. <laughs> I love it. I'm 31, and I have a 30-year-old son, so think about that. Amazing. I know. Well, I have, two of the boys are coming, and we're going to go out and celebrate. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this we don't have to talk about... Well, I, I'm glad I'm here. Anyway, 20 Happy seconds Happy birthday. Left. Thank you. Lauren Deller and Catherine Zox, have a great week. You've been listening to Western Voice America Women's Network. Uh, we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. 